obviously, uh, as you said in, in your Denton's analysis, uh, uncharted waters in British Columbia uh, as far as where we go from here and, and a few question marks still. But uh, let's start off with sort of the economic impact here. Uh, we've had stable government for about 16 years and, and uh, now we're not quite sure how it's going to play out. So as you look at sort of the economic uh, fallout of this whole thing, what did you arrive at? Well, I mean, the, the economic instability is, is just a fact. Uh, you know, the business community um, always looks for uh, stability, and I can tell you that I, I know through our, our firm at Denton's that we already have a number of clients who have put projects on hold because they're waiting to see what the fallout is actually going to be of the BC election campaign. But even more than that, it's pretty obvious that the, the situation is untenable. I mean, it's in effect 43 BC Liberals, 43 NDP and Green MLAs, assuming a speaker comes from the NDP Green Coalition. So the, the BC legislature for the coming months is going to be on tinderhooks over one vote, one person who can not show up, who can miss a flight, who can have a family crisis. It's going to be really challenging for Premier Horgan, assuming that he becomes Premier in a few weeks. It's going to be very challenging for him to sustain the confidence of Parliament and to keep that governing coalition uh, bound together. It's... it's um, not something that anybody who's in government on either side has any experience with in British Columbia. And the ability to manage personalities and to keep the agenda moving forward and to avoid the potholes that come at you uh, by virtue of just being in government is, is going to be incredibly unstable for, um, for quite some time. So one of the things that caught my eye is your analysis of the 10-page document, the deal between the two parties. You note that there's no economic initiatives listed there. There aren't. I mean, I, I think those who are sympathetic to the NDP would say, well, you know, there's, there's economic initiatives in the government spending money on infrastructure or stopping raw log exports or what have you. Well, I suppose. Um, but, you know, it's a 10-page document. It's replete with promises on procedural amendments and, and government spending more money and committing to minimum wage. But all of it is about the government spending the wealth of taxpayers, not creating wealth for taxpayers. Um, you know, say what you will about Premier Clark, but, you know, she aspired to go forward and to uh, expand the LNG uh, industry in British Columbia. She aspired and built the Site C uh, dam and moved that project forward. She you know, aspired for, for economic growth through expanded free trade across across the Asia Pacific, um, trying to resolve the softwood lumber agreement by having David Emerson being brought in as necessary. But, but, but again, putting irons in the fire for economic growth and forward-leaning and, and pushing for things, even, even some things that may be controversial, like like uh, providing the export permits for um, and, and the environmental uh, permits for um, LNG or, or for excuse me for pipelines in British Columbia in the Kinder Morgan project. W- one can agree or disagree with whether or not the pipelines should go forward, but there's clearly an aspiration to get commerce and business moving into the province. There, there really isn't any of that in the agreement. The agreement is about clearly about um, ensuring that New Democrat voters and the base and Green Party voters in the base feel at home ideologically in this sort of merged family. But there's really nothing about um, enterprise, economic growth, and, and, and building BC's economy. It's, it's really quite amazing how they left that out in a 10-page document. So just to kind of focus down on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I'm curious about your take on this, but you know, not only in your position sort of as, a, as your life in politics and, and looking at it now from outside, but also as a former uh, high-ranking member of parliament and cabinet minister in a federal government, the Trudeau government's backing this thing, uh, and yet uh, potentially a John Horgan-Andrew Weaver coalition would oppose it. From your experience, James, is there any way a province could stand in the way of this thing or no? Um, I, I suppose they could delay and push. I, I think that the most recent chatter is about uh, what um, 
coastal First Nations uh, uh, they might back in terms of a legal challenge to the process. But I think it's pretty hard. Uh, you know, the National Energy Review uh, uh, process is thorough and it was long and it took time and, and, I, and I thought it was it was uh, quite substantive and, and well thought through. Um, but, but clearly, I think there's going to be a standoff. The NDP government in Alberta versus the NDP government in British Columbia, uh, Justin Trudeau in Ottawa, um, coastal First Nations who might still be uh, have some anxiety and opposition to this, and the mayor of Vancouver versus um, Alberta First Nations and Interior First Nations who have signed on and want to see the Kinder Morgan pipeline expand and grow. Like it, that there's there's clearly two forces that are that are going to collide here uh, politically. Well, one thing that I think that that I think the national media narrative really misses out on is that there's far from a British Columbia consensus on this. You know, there's this perception that British Columbians are overwhelmingly opposed to the Kinder Morgan pipeline. We forget just a few years ago in, in 2013. Um, the absolute opposition to the Kinder Morgan pipeline by the NDP leader, Adrian Dix, cost him that election and gave Christy Clark a stronger majority government than Gordon Campbell had. So there, there is a clear um, large cohort of British Columbians, let's say 35 to 40 or 45 percent of British Columbians, that are either okay or strongly supportive with the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And you know, if, if an NDP government or any government in British Columbia is seen as ideologically driving investment out of the province, that's toxic to the NDP brand of a moderated social democratic party who's in favor of some free enterprise. And if they're just belligerently against pipelines, that's what killed Adrian Dix's prospects of becoming premier. And John Horgan needs to be careful with that. All right. And the other issue I wanted to focus on is proportional representation. We have no idea what that will look like, but I, uh, yeah. ideally they're going to have this election or referendum rather alongside the 2018 municipal election. And and I gather that, uh, that you guys see some issues with that. Yeah, look, um, every New Democrat party on paper is in favor of proportional representation. No New Democratic government in Canadian history has ever moved forward with proportional representation. Um, even the NDP governments under Premiers Harcourt, Desange, Clark, they never went forward with proportional representation. No NDP uh, government or party in British Columbia has ever won more than 50% of the vote. So therefore, if you look at this, the historic fact that New Democrats have never won a majority of the popular vote, if they were actually bring in proportional representation, they would be eliminating their ability, historically, of actually having absolute uh, majority government in the B.C. legislature. Well, certainly the public sector unions and the ideological backers of the NDP, they actually want the NDP to be in government with a majority in order to deliver for them. They don't want proportional representation. They don't want a political science, scientist's sort of perfect dream of a perfect electoral system that reflects the proportion of votes that the public gives. You know, the supporters of the NDP want the NDP to have power. And the NDP is only a couple seats away from actually having a majority government. So, you know, what they've promised in their coalition agreement is to have a referendum of British Columbians and ask them what kind of proportional representation that the British British Columbians would want. Well, first, in the 2014 municipal elections, only 33% of the public voted. So if you had a multi, say, three, three versions of proportional representation put towards the public, and so imagine it was, uh, you know, 10%, 10%, and 13%. So you're really going to have 13% of British Columbians in a municipal election really change a centerpiece of our democratic way of life uh, in, in a referendum that is, that, that is that unclear and has that little momentum behind it? So I, I think the proportional representation promise that's been put in this coalition agreement is a placeholder for green backers who realize that New Democrats don't actually want proportional representation. They want power. And I think anybody who's realistic about um, 
um, politicians and political parties and why they're actually running, which is to affect change. I, I think people are realistic about it, and I think the promise of proportional representation is a placeholder that will likely never be realized, not only because of that, but also because the government itself is going to be so unstable with a one-vote margin. The other problem that uh, has been pointed out to me about it is, A, the timeline between now and 2018 uh, is not exactly a lengthy timeline to put together a process and sell it to British Columbians. And the other, as you pointed out, is, is turnout. Uh, it, yeah. would, uh, it would seem to me to be somewhat toxic to the idea as a whole that if it was 13 to 17 percent of British Columbians chose how the rest of us voted provincially. Well, Justin Trudeau found out very quickly when he made a broad statement saying the 2015 federal election was the last one under past post. He didn't even commit to a specific kind of electoral reform. Everything was on the table, and he realized very quickly that this is just not doable because the public prefers, generally speaking, stable governments. The two longest-serving democracies in the world, the United States and the U.K., have first-past-the-post electoral systems that frankly work. Are they perfect? Of course not. There's no system that's perfect, but they work well, and they serve the country well. Uh, and those are also, by the way, the, the largest economy in the world, the United States, fifth largest economy in the world, the U.K., Political stability also feeds economic stability. And having endless minority parliaments, which is what proportional representation guarantees, is not stability. And, you know, we, we, we have short-term memories. Between 2004 and 2011, Canada, we had almost seven years of minority parliaments in, this, in our country. And I don't think people look back on those years as a window of phenomenal democratic fluidity and compromise and thoughtfulness. I was in those federal parliaments, and they were ugly and acrimonious personal and backbiting, and there was gossip and, and constant threats of a confidence vote every 30 days or 60 days. It wasn't the best of democratic uh, opportunity for Canada. And I, I think people, when they look at proportional representation, might sort of st- take a step back and say, this really isn't the best way and, and the highest priority that we have for our political system to be focusing on. And I guess my last question, James, uh, if you were a gambling man, would you go down to BCLC and put your life savings on this thing lasting four years? Uh, I would put my life savings on this not lasting four years. As a matter of fact, I, you know, historically, minority parliaments last about 18 months. That's about the average. Joe Clark lasted less than that. Stephen Harper, you know, Stephen Harper's minority government in from 2006 to 2008 was the longest lasting minority parliament in Canadian history. It lasted two and a half years. The main reason why, though, was because the Bloc Québécois had the balance of power and they tanked in the polls. And they were scared of losing their salaries and losing their, their years that contributed to their MP pensions. And so they sustained Stephen Harper's government. We also made some compromises. We reached out to other parties and, for example, put Gary Dewar in Washington, D.C. as our ambassador. And we reached out to David Emerson, a liberal, and brought him into Canada. We did things that moderated our agenda, yes. But the diversity of the federal parliament between conservatives, NDP, liberals, and Bloc Québécois created, created an opportunity for us to work with other parties in British Columbia it's 43 to 43 with one NDP speaker. And you are one missed flight away from a missed confidence vote. You are one crisis or one eccentric personality or one broken promise away from all of this falling apart in either direction. So I would not bet on this lasting, frankly, more than 18 months. Thanks, James. Pleasure yeah. chatting. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye.